What is up? Welcome back to Big Fat Five, a podcast financially supported by Big Fat Snare Drum. I'm a little congested right now, and so I sound like Wolfman Jack. But my name is Ben Hilsinger, and this week's guest is Noah Hecht, a Brooklyn-based drummer and instructor who proudly studied under Billy Hart at Oberlin Conservatory of Music and College. He's also worked with Purr, Yaysayer, Eleanor Friedberger, Man Forever, Porches, Cassandra Jenkins, and many more. If I were to state a through line for this chat, it's that Noah is obsessed with placement and its relationship with time. You'll see what I mean. And for his request, I will include a link to one of the teachers he forgot to mention. And in addition to that, there will also be a bunch of links associated with Noah's fourth pick about Afro-Brazilian music. So listen to the episode and then rush back here and and click click things. So Afro-Brazilian music, I didn't know a lot about it. It's very fascinating and the history runs deep. So I'm excited for you to hear about that. And I hope you enjoy the whole show, which is about Noah's top five records that helped shape him into the drummer he is today. So cheers, and I'm going to go get a lozenge. So what was your mindset going into attacking these five? And like I always say, I know I do give you a prompt on things that shaped you, but how did you actually go about doing this? Uh, well, first, I experienced excitement <laughs> because this is my first uh, podcast interview. I mean, I've done radio stuff where I've been like a part of a band or yeah, whatever. But And then so once I realized that, then it was a healthy dose of anxiety. <laughs> so I was like, okay, who am I? You know, how do <laughs> I, know, I, that's a big how do I define this? So I got a little too existential and then I <laughs> sort of reeled it back. I was actually hanging out this weekend with my best friend who taught me my first drum beat when we were 10. We started like a pop punk band together and we made like tapes on um, his like Porta studio. Maybe it was a Yamaha, whatever. Yeah. Four track cassette tape recorder. But anyways, I asked him, I was like, yo, Alex, like, what, what do I do? Uh, and he was like, well, definitely leave on. And I was like, okay, that makes sense. So I tried to think what shaped me most from an early age and then realized, oh, wait, I've really changed so much as I've grown older and had new experiences and whatever, formative experiences. So then I tried to sort of pick records that in some ways like represent particular uh, periods of my life. I don't know, what was the first one I picked? The first one is On the Beach, Neil Young. The release here is 1974. And I asked for a key track, which we will play in a second, is Revolution Blues. And from our texting earlier, our, our favorite drummer, Levon Helm. Yeah. Is, so yeah, you didn't choose a band song. You chose a song where he was a side guy. So yeah, Neil Young, Levon Helm. Take it away. I will say that the first Levon I heard was definitely music from Big Pink. I mean, sure. yeah, it's an incredible record. I listened to it thousands of times but i wanted to pick this recording because 
you can really hear the way that he's slightly swinging the ghost notes in the snare drum, sort of leading up to the, the backbeat. But then when he plays some more articulated fills, they're very straight. So he's very comfortable, sort of fluidly working between different articulations of like the, of the particular swing on the subdivision that he's working with. And to me, that brings up his proximity to the Mississippi Delta region as it connects to New Orleans, the connection to second line drumming in some way or the other, because there's a particular way that swing is felt down there that is so foundational for the way that rock and roll, I guess the rhythmic elements of rock and roll really like was born. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that was a good sentence or not, but <laughs> we'll, we'll I enjoyed it. it the entire time. All right, cool. So you can't really perfectly write out what he's doing. And that, and that goes for the other people I've picked as well. And that's where like the real, the sort of magic happens, I think, you know, where he plays in the cracks. Um, and it's also about Rick Danko in here too. I mean, let's be real. Like the two of them are incredible. Oh, Danko's on this, on this album as well. Awesome. Yeah. Well, let's go to number two. So the album is, it is another uh, drummer we talked about that's getting a lot, a lot of love, but it, it's funny. He wasn't at the beginning, so maybe that was my choice in drummers, but it is uh, a love supreme. Of course, John Coltrane, 1965. The key track that we're about to play is Acknowledgement, and the drummer is Mr. Elvin Jones. So take it away, and then we'll listen to some Acknowledgement. I discovered this record, I don't know, maybe 14 or 15 there was this drummer in my high school who was four years above me, Pete, and he and I had the same drum teacher. And this is in the suburbs of Philly. You know, we had a really strong music program in the middle school and high school. And uh, But Pete was, was and is, though I don't think he's playing all that much now, is an incredible drummer and super sweet guy. And I, I think I was basically like gushing to my teacher, like, I don't know how Pete like does it. He's incredible. But, you know, just as totally starry eyed. He said, well, why don't you ask Pete, like what his five favorite records are? So I, I went up to Pete and I was like, uh, uh, Pete, you know, I'm in like pimply eighth grader or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, what are your favorite records? And he just like, didn't miss a beat. He was just like, uh, you know, rattled them off. And one of them included a love Supreme and, I was like, okay, yeah, John Coltrane, that sounds familiar. And I popped it in. It was just like like the universe opened, you know. I had never heard so much um, mastery playing with time. And again, as I mentioned with Levon, sort of in this elastic way, 
you know, where I think initially I was like, oh, did he mean to do that? Like, mm-hmm. oh, that, is that a mistake? You know, if you can remember, like, having those experiences when you're first listening to like, what? Like, surely he didn't need it. And then suddenly it dawns and you're like, oh, yeah, no, that was, like, 100% intentional. <laughs> um, and it just, like, it, it kind of broke my brain. Like, I didn't know how he was doing any of what he was doing. And I picked this track, too, because I love the way that he relates to, like, Afro-Cuban tradition and folklore tradition. Because that, that cascara pattern is so iconic. And the way he builds into it, he sort of, like, starts with the stripped-down skeleton of the beat. That's this beautiful, even on its own, it's, like, a pretty interesting and beautiful phrase. And then all of a sudden, he launches launches into this cascara pattern that's just you know, elevates the whole thing, you know, and I don't want to not talk about McCoy and, and Jimmy Garrison and, and train. I mean, it's just the, the alchemy of that group is incredible. And I think um, maybe when I was first learning how to play jazz and studying jazz, I maybe didn't initially connect with some of the quote unquote, more straight ahead records, like the cooking steam and relaxing with miles with Philly Joe and Red Garland, and I think it's PC on bass. I mean, those are amazing records, but I just kind of felt like there's something about this that maybe just spoke to me more. Maybe it was just the immediacy of it. You know, it's like so, there's so much urgency. Um, and it's maybe the fact that Elvin's like, he's digging in. You know, there's like a textural familiarity there in the symbol in particular for kids who like, come up playing like punk or rock and roll or whatever like i did and then i think maybe i was also like subliminal subliminally hearing like bonham you know because bonham is so heavily influenced by all of them and my sister listens so much zeppelin and i i didn't want to include bonham but i mean he's definitely up there for me i just of course i wanted to be able you know but um it, it's only really been the last year or two you know, even though I went to conservatory and everything, like, I think I got a little freaked out. I was always a little intimidated by the prospect of really, like, learning note for note what Elvin's playing. I've just been going, recently been going deep on just, like, 12 bars of comping. Can, can you uh, embellish on that? What do, you, what do you mean it was intimidating? Because his time is so elastic and unique, I think I also had, like, a fear of influence, you know, like mm. I was like, Oh, well shit. If I like, if I really try to cop some Melvin here, then everyone's going to know that that's what I've been listening to. And that's what I'm trying to do. But then I think I started hearing, heard this from multiple sources that like Tony was obsessed with Elvin and had studied Elvin to the point where he could sound exactly like him. Um, I mean, obviously through the filter of being Tony Williams, Yeah. but he learned all of that so that, he understood it, kept what he wanted, but then left behind what he didn't want. And so it's sort of through that filter that he was ultimately able to find, you know, what was in there that added up to the recipe of, you know, who he is mm-hmm. and who we know him to be. And so the deeper you go, then the further away you get from the possibility of someone mistaking or someone thinking that like, oh, that's so lame, you're just like aping so-and-so, you know, insert famous drummer. I do honestly think that the more time you spend with it and, you know, allow it to gestate, the more you're able to find yourself in there. I know it's a cliche, but it honestly takes, I think, doing that 
to realize it. It's like experiential knowledge versus just like taking what people have to say for, you know, at face value. He's definitely pushing right now, too. Yeah. So I really was excited to hear uh, you talk about him because, or this drummer, Billy Hart, because you did study with him. So number yeah. three is uh, Billy Hart Quartet. Artist is, of course, Billy Hart. Uh, the release here is 2006. Key track is Neon. But again, listen to all these records all the way through. And yeah, the drummer's Billy Hart. So yeah, take it away. Hey, y'all. I wanted to... <laughs> I can't say. I wanted to talk to you about a drum I've recently received from Preston at Vessel Drum Co. It's an ocean patinaed 14 by 5.5 snare drum, and it's incredible. It's got a 1.5 millimeter shell, brass shell, with 10 lugs, chrome over brass, triple flange hoops, a trick uh, three position strainer, 42 strand wires. It's lovely, it's loud and it cuts and records as beautiful as a piece of butter cake. 
And, and Preston actually, this is why it's called the ocean patina, is he covers the shell with seaweed and then drops it in the ocean for a certain period of time. And then it patinas with all these crazy cool designs. And if you all remember, Preston was actually one of the first guests on the podcast. When I first started out, I didn't really know what the Big Fat Five format was going to be or if it was going to be even Big Fat Five at all. But I went to his garage, his, his, you know, where he makes all of his drums. It was really cool. He walked me through the episode is essentially from start to finish what happens with a drum. And it was, it was a really fun episode. It's now archived at bigfatsnaredrum.com just because it doesn't fit the format of Big Fat Five. I want you to get back to the show, but go check it out. This drum is beautiful. And he actually let me use it on an Eve 6 tour and I didn't keep it and I regretted it ever since then just because I was trying to pinch pennies at the time and I just kept thinking about it and so the opportunity to get it again was presented and it is one of my favorite drums so the ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum check it out reach out to me go to vessel drum co the instagram's just at vessel drum co and check it out it's amazing it's beautiful sounds great bye I went to Oberlin Conservatory, studied in the jazz department, and Billy was the teacher. Billy Hart was the teacher. And yeah, he just changed my life, you know? When I got to school, I felt so behind a lot of other kids, especially like in terms of my understanding of straight ahead, quote unquote straight ahead playing. Yeah, I really felt like I shouldn't shouldn't have gotten in, like total imposter syndrome it was like surely they've made a mistake yeah yeah um, <laughs> where's the cameras and and billy is you know such a loving guy you know not soft and cuddly but just you could really feel like he had your back you know just gave so much of himself gives so much of himself to his students and so in return i, I did the same like i would like pick him up from the airport when he flew in from like germany or wherever he was finishing up a tour like I would skip like music theory classes or whatever, just to like soak up whatever he had to say, because jazz is basically an, or an oral tradition. You know, he's like a pillar of, of jazz, you know, quote unquote jazz. I mean, I know I'm throwing that word around and I know it's a heavily contested word, but he, he is a big pillar of black American music, you know, in so-called jazz idiom and beyond. I just feel like the man's like a walking encyclopedia. I mean, obviously, he offers his particular take on drum set and music in general, but um, it's so expansive at the same time, you know? He's very specific about, I think, what he loves and what he's drawn to and what he teaches, but he knows so much. And in this particular track, um, this, this track is written by Ethan Iverson, uh, pianist in the quartet. In this track, Billy is playing a lot of West African rhythms that have been transcribed or transposed however you want to say it for the drum kit and these are actually rhythms that we learned from billy and so it's not as though he like said one thing and like did another like he played all the shit that he was teaching us and it just so in that way like every time i hear him it's like uh it's going back to school you know what i mean and it's not as though he's just like playing licks or something he's he incorporates all of these ideas in the most musical ways it also speaks to the way that billy himself learned you know he didn't learn any music school he didn't even have a drum teacher at any point he came up playing 
and learning how to play while he was on the road. Like his first gig was with Shirley Horn, I believe. And he would talk about like setting up for sound check and there'd be like a line of drummers outside of the venue. And maybe a couple people would sneak in and they'd like watch him play and they'd be like, man, how the fuck did you get this gig? Like you sound like shit. You know, it's like the implication of what they were saying. And then some of them were nice enough to be like, hey, look, let me show you, like, let, let me give you a couple pointers, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it was really just like in this sort of piecemeal way that um, Billy was able to to learn. And I think that that sort of shapes the way that he in turn ended up teaching all of us too, you know? She's just like, hey, look, this is like everything I have collected over the course of my life. And I'm going to share it with you. Like, are you ready? Here you go try to absorb all, you know, as much as, as much of it as you can. There's something incredibly playful about Billy as a person that really translates into his playing. Like just, he's such a joker, you know, I, there, <laughs> yeah, there, <laughs> some, some jokes I don't want to share necessarily. Oh, come on, but, like, share one. I'll, I'll cut it out if it's too bad. <laughs> okay. I'm trying to think like, no, it's just like, I can't. Okay. Um, he, you know, it was just like, I'll, I'll just sort of loosely reference something. Like when we first showed up for lessons, you know, it's like super green freshman. He'd sit us down and pretend like it was like the most serious thing in the world and that he was going to like haze us and like make us like jump through a ring of fire or something. He would bring us to the point of actually almost doing this thing. And then he'd be like, no, I'm just fucking with you. Come on, man. Yeah. You guys were going to do that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, like I said, the dude has like endless love for his students. Um, you know, it just really like made, made us all feel like and realize that we are part of this like larger sort of family of drummers, you know? That's how it really felt. And it's something that I think shapes the way that I relate to other drummers too now. I'm still pretty tight with a lot of the people I, I went to school with and yeah, it just feels like, you know, oh, you said with Billy? Like, okay, we're like cousins or something, you know? Hell yeah. All right, well, here's here's Neon.
going to have you pronounce the next one because <laughs> I don't oh, even sure. want to try to butcher this. People would be like, yeah, go ahead, Ben. So this is, uh, is this the Brazilian record? Yes, I think so. Yes, because Voodoo is okay, not. Okay. So yeah, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this is an Afro-Brazilian folkloric group, more than a group, actually, uh, a nation. And I'll explain what that means. Mm. Uh, from Recife, which is the it's spelled R-E-C-I-F-E, which is in the state of Pernambuco. It's just northeastern Brazil. It's north north and east of Salvador, um, which is north and east of Rio. Um, and so this group is called Maracatu uh, Nassau Estrela Brianchi. So Maracatu is a, a nation, as it is also a style of music, but Maracatu is formed in northeastern Brazil during the African slave trade. They basically, from what I understand, they formed out of these sort of coronation type ceremonies, quote unquote coronation ceremonies that uh, the Portuguese court would hold for enslaved Africans who were being elected as sort of like the to some sort of leadership position within the community of enslaved Africans in Hisifi. You know, I'm not exactly sure what they were doing with their uh, elected status, but I'm, I think functionally that that was a way of, of sort of keeping the peace and, and sort of maintaining that, maintaining power essentially for, for the Portuguese. But what's so interesting about the music and also the ceremonies that you see performed during Carnival is very subversive, um, what they were doing. So the rhythms, yeah, the rhythms are all, and also sort of the religious figures that are represented, but secretly um, within these ceremonies, because I know there are no visual aids for podcasts, but people can Google this. Yeah. Um, basically, while there are all these drummers playing, there are also, there are people dressed in sort of exaggerated colonial garb of that time period. And they're mocking, from what I understand, they're mocking the Portuguese court. But so... The other subversive thing about, about what's happening musically is that they're rhythmically, they're drawing on an African syncret, Afro-Brazilian syncretic religion called Condomble, which is, was a way for Africans, enslaved Africans to maintain their connection, connection to their homeland while pretending that they were worshiping Catholic deities. Mm. And obviously, I think it's, you know, somebody, you know, at that time, Portuguese uh, slaver, like, heard them playing their drums are like, wait a second, that's not, that's not European. Sure. But if they were, I, I don't know exactly how this played out, but if they saw them like, uh, with a little statuette of Mother Mary, you know, little did they know that they were actually worshiping Imenja, who's the goddess of the sea and fish and children. Mm. And and so in Candomblé, every there's a particular set of rhythms and songs that are performed for each deity at a given time period, depending on the time of year. And in these rituals, religious rituals, somebody in the tejero or the the church becomes possessed by that deity. And this is still practiced today. I think there was a, a time period when it was illegal. I mean, it was definitely illegal at that point. Um, but even after, I think slavery in Brazil was abolished in the late 1880s. 
and I'm sure it probably continued in some form after that mm-hmm. um, slightly. But I'm pretty sure there was a time period where if not being illegal is definitely like frowned upon and judged harshly. So there's something very secretive about it still to this day. And so I spent time in uh, Hisifi for like maybe a month and a half and in Brazil for a total of a couple of months between years when I was in college because I just got bit by the Brazilian music bug just hard. And actually through an old student of Billy's, I was put in touch with a teacher in Hisifi named Jorge Martins who uh, ran a school, sort of a nonprofit for kids in the city who couldn't necessarily afford music lessons. Um, and I ended up studying with Georgie and some of the guys that were once students of his and then became teachers. And it was just a life-changing experience for me, being introduced to and trying to understand a super deep folkloric tradition felt super connected to West Africa and, and is super connected to West Africa to not only just like look at the music, but just understand how it functions within the culture itself it was incredibly deep and humbling. And I remember uh, in one of my Condomble lessons with uh, the teacher, his name is, his name is Zay. He grew up in one of like the oldest Tejeros, like his family ran a Tejero means like church, um, Condomble church. He grew up in one of the oldest ones in Hasifi. And, and he actually took me to meet his family and, we were looking at something, one particular rhythm, and I think I was having a hard time like dealing with, again, a certain elasticity in the rhythm. It's not something you could r- really write out mm-hmm. um, with Western notation. I mean, maybe it could, but then it would just, you know, the spirit of it just really wouldn't be there. Yeah. And I was just maybe saying like, man, I'm having such a hard time like connecting with this. And he said this in Portuguese, so it was probably much more beautifully stated than um, this translated version, but he was basically like, you are, you're completely connected to what it is you're playing and what you're playing is completely connected to what you see around you, you know, to nature. This is what the rhythms you are playing are a way of interfacing with the deities that represent everything you see, like the ocean, the air, animals, the trees. Or in your case, a radiator in your apartment. <laughs> yeah, totally. So, there is just something incredibly eye-opening about that, that I, you know, I just return to that sometimes. It's just, it's like, what, what are we actually doing when we're playing, you know? And whether or not you subscribe to uh, one form of spirituality or religion or another, it's like, there, there is a certain connectedness that I feel like you can't deny that, that music creates for us. You know, it, it puts us, I think, in conversation with something beyond ourselves. I'm still processing what I learned. And that was like, yeah, 2008. Wow. So I don't know. You do the math 15 years ago? 75 years is what I just figured out. <laughs> Georgie Martinez, the guy who ran the school that I, where I was studying, and he used to play in Estrella Brianchi. And so the there's a bell pattern in there you may or may not be able to hear that is totally deceptive. If you don't know where it's placed, you might think that the beat, you know, from a Western perspective, you might think that the beat starts in somewhere where it doesn't. So the bell pattern is one E and a two E and a one E and a two E and a one E and a two E and a. And if you just take that rhythm, 
same as it's the same as one e and a two e and a three e and a four e and a, which is the you know half of the clave, right? Mm-hmm. Except it's starting on the the e after one. Very tricky. <laughs> yeah. So totally alien. And the the large drums are called alfayas. They're carved out of trees, a particular tree. They're playing off of that upbeat as well. The first hits on the downbeat. Boom. So one e and a two e and a one e and e and a one e and a two e and a two e and a one. And then there's the the snare drum pattern and the kaisha pattern. And then there are these really interesting rhythmic turnarounds that happen. But the, the reason why I wanted to include this, beyond it, just this is a very formative experience for me studying over there. I think it connects to this larger theme that I keep on sort of going back to, is, which is like sort of elasticity in the expression of rhythm, like a certain humanness that I, I'm just so drawn to, you know, there's just like a magic there. And I, it always just leaves me wondering, like, how the fuck did they do that? And then I just like get obsessed with like figuring out how to embody that, you know, whether it's Alvin or Levon or this. Cheguei, meu povo, cheguei pra vadia. Sou eu a nação estrela, não prometo pra faltar. Sou eu a nação estrela, não prometo pra faltar. Sou eu a nação estrela, não prometo pra faltar. Sou eu a nação estrela, não prometo pra faltar. Cheguei, meu povo, cheguei pra variar. There's a lot going on there. I can see yeah, a lot going on. It's pretty, yeah, it's dense. <laughs> well, let's uh, switch completely. Well, maybe not completely. I guess there's ways that they know it's a through line and all this. But the album is number five, uh, Voodoo. The artist is D'Angelo. Release year is 2000. Key track is The Root. And yeah, Questlove. So take it away. Yeah. So I know I'm sort of like beating a dead horse here a little bit. But I mean, so I'm, I grew up in the suburbs of Philly. Um, I would say one of the first records I like played along with a lot was Do You Want More by The Roots. Um, but the reason why I picked this record is because it also throws Jay Dilla into the mix. Because Jay Dilla, you know, was looming large when they were making this record. From what I understand, he was at Electric Ladyland quite a bit. I don't know if he has a production credit on this particular track. I think he might. But the Dan Charnas book, about Dilla that came out not that long ago is amazing. Um, and I 
think it's either in that book or somewhere else. I was reading something about this record. I'm pretty sure this is actually a loop that I mm. think Dilla, Dilla maybe have had a hand in creating, though I could be full of shit. But regardless, what I do know is that the sort of drunken, elastic feeling that Questlove is playing with here, but also the way that Pino Palladino, the bass player, is playing against him, and even D'Angelo himself's phrasing, I mean, that that is 100% inspired by Shea Dilla's sort of rhythmic concept, where he was very drawn to sort of exploiting the tension between things that were on the grid and things that were not on the grid. He, you know, I think people really wonder like, oh man, how did he actually like go about like making his beats on the NPC? Like did he didn't use any quantization whatsoever. Dan Charnas in his book actually sort of challenges that idea and says like, well, he just used different kinds of quantization at different moments. Like maybe he's quantizing to the sex couplet here and the, you know, um, but like in the in the kick drum or the hi-hat, it's like the 16th no grid. But then maybe he was actually like playing where the snare drum was being played, for example. So I think it was a mixture of all those things. But if you listen to Questlove's playing on this in particular, that snare drum is early. It's really interesting. It's, it's where the hi-hat lands with the snare drum as well. And it's also the placement of the... I mean, I'm even singing it wrong. It's where he's placing that kick drum is like so compelling to me. The kick drum right before the snare drum. It's like, it's like, where is it? You know, <laughs> where is that? And this is another one that I've spent a lot of time playing along with because I just wanted to be able to capture that. And it's so, so magical to me. And also, I mean, it's ridiculous, like, hearing the way Pino is playing off. Whether or not Questlove is playing a loop or not. I mean, obviously, he could totally play down, like, the entirety of the song. But regardless, the way it's also a lot of... I keep on using the word magic, whatever. A lot of the sort of... It's a good word. It's a good word, yeah. A lot of what's so magical, <laughs> I think, about this track is... Pino's interaction with Questlove here because he's so fucking late. It's ridiculous. It's like comical. It's like it's like cartoonish in a way. You know, it's unbelievable. It's there's so much control there, and I think it's sort of like that tumbly feeling, that drunkenness. I mean, not to sort of like paint them all with the same color or whatever, but I'd say like in the broader scheme of like rhythmic or like musical devices from a temporal perspective, timekeeping perspective, like. I think Alvin, Levon, Questlove, slash Jay Dilla, um, also Pino in there, and Rick Jenko in there with Levon, Maraca to Estrella, Brianchi, like they are all fucking with time heavily. And in a way that you're not gonna understand on first listen. Like you need to live with the music to figure out what it what's happening, how to fold it into what you do.
2013 I played on Fallon and I wasn't prepared for like what it was going to be like hearing the roots totally shred for like 10 seconds sound bite before we had to I had to count off the song oh yeah so very disorienting hearing them just completely kill it and then Fallon was like and you here we have like Eleanor Friedberg and I was like oh. yeah, exactly <laughs> you know so yeah. do they, when you and I haven't played uh, Fallon, are they there the whole time, just watching you the whole time when you're playing? I think they were sitting there, but honestly, I was like shitting my pants and like <laughs> yeah. didn't um, really know what was happening. <laughs> but Yeah, totally I, understand that. Yeah, and I like wanted to, but like didn't ultimately try to find him in their dressing room. So I was just like, you know what? They're professionals and it's like some new freaking band in here every other day or when, however often they, they have these little guests. It's like, yeah, I don't need to be like, oh, excuse me, Mr. Thompson. Um, I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia and I, and I think we're connected in that way because <laughs> you're from <laughs> Philadelphia and I love you. Yeah. No, I had the same thing. Matt Chamberlain used to go before I moved to Studio City. He went to the same gym I went to. Oh, and uh, so many times we'd be, I mean, if he ever hears this, so embarrassed. Like, We'd we'd be like lifting weights next to each other, and I'd be I'd want to be like, no. He seems like a cool dude. You should have him on the show. I should, I should, I should. Um, yeah, the answer is, is I should. So <laughs> I would love to hear what the hell he's inspired by for sure. Yeah. So, well, Noah, that's your that's your big fat five, man. I I appreciate you uh, going through all the heartache <laughs> of of picking those five. But so I I know you do. You do teach lessons. You do. You're an active guy in the community. So this is a chance to kind of do some self promotion. If you'd like to, you can also say hell no, Ben. Yeah. Um. You know, as much as I kind of hate it, um, and like struggle with my relationship with it, Instagram's probably a, a good way to get in touch with me. Um. I I think I have a pretty annoying handle. It's like my middle name, but with like numbers and instead of some letters is really like I did not have the foresight to realize that oh maybe I should like come up with something that people can you know use uh to get in touch with me more easily oh yeah no so I I love to teach um you know I do record remotely for people who are interested in that got a nice setup can do it to tape too if 
if you want, maybe, you know, I have to figure out how to price that up. <laughs> but I do do that. And yeah, I, you know, I play with different groups. Uh, just look me up. I guess most recently I've been playing with this group, Purr, who put out a great record on Anti that, um, you know, I wish was getting more love. Um, mm. Great drummer played on most of the record, Dan Bailey. Oh, he's been on the show actually three times. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. He's, he's yeah, like, Dan's awesome. Yeah, I've heard he's a really sweet guy. I he am is. on one song, but I am playing with them live, and uh, it's been very fun, and maybe I'll end up playing with Cassandra Jenkins again uh, for the next album cycle, whenever that is. And Yeah, I'm around. All right, dude. Well, I'll talk to you soon. I have your phone number, man. So yeah, I'll hit you up when I'm in town. Yeah, be in touch. And that's the show. If you're listening on a platform that allows ratings and reviews, do that. It helps more people find the show, so it'll get bigger and better, and hopefully I'll have a chance to sell out one day. But you'll be an OG listener that can brag to all your friends. Anyways, why don't you go and check us out at BigFatSnareDrum.com and follow us on all the socials. Just search for Big Fat Snare Drum and you will find us. The show is edited in part using Isotope RX Audio Editor. It's amazing, so go check that out at Isotope.com. And thanks again to Gunnar Olsen for the theme music. Bye!